Hi, PJ. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. I'm so thrilled to be here too. Thanks for having me. So you are a zookeeper, correct? Yes. So I was a zookeeper for 15 years. And, and in the year 2015, though, I did trade in my zoo, my zoo keys and as I, my zoo keys and my radio and picked up a pair of dumbbells and a jump rope, at least that's my, my running joke. So I, I am now 100% of the time a fitness consultant, but I still work very closely and still always and forever in my heart will be a zookeeper. There's a, oh, wow. there's a saying again, once a zookeeper, you, you just never, you can take the zookeeper out of the zoo. You can't take the keeper out of, out of the, out of the, you can't take the zoo out of the keeper. <laughs> Oh, wow. I didn't realize that you were doing this 100% full time and we'll, we'll get into your program. That that's great. Yeah. I say the same thing for a scientist too. Like I'm, I'm switched careers and I'm still doing research, but I'm not leading research projects. And I'm right. sure I'll get to a point where I'm not really actively on research. Um, my data might be contributing and stuff, but, but yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Like once a scientist, always a scientist. So you, so you're running ZooFit then full-time. This is your, your full-time gig. Yeah. And, and again, it, it's, it was, it was born at the zoo and it really does hit most, not just zookeepers. I, I, again, my, my niche audience is, is animal care professionals, but all scientists, especially like the medical fields, those doing those heavy research, especially in today's age right now. We have people working nonstop to help us fight the pandemic. And that sets in a lot of what we call compassion fatigue and burnout, if you will. And so my program really targets those, those people to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of the planet a little bit better too. And uh, still being able to, to share my passion for wildlife for science and for and for conservation in general to the to the world and and also especially to zookeepers in general. Yeah, I love that. And you actually reached out to me after listening to my self-care episode because yeah. I feel the same way about scientists. And then we also had Jesse from Lonely Conservationist on and she was talking about this the same thing for for conservationists that that burnout is huge and in several ways. So you have us working really hard that there's just like so many different things to do. And then you also have it like how you mentioned compassion fatigue and for us as, as scientists or in the conservation world, just handling the conservation crisis can be really difficult. So can you tell us, can you tell us about compassion fatigue and what that means for people who out there don't know? Yeah. So, uh, compassion fatigue is basically that is it the best way I've heard described is when you care too much and it's, again, it's a little bit like burnout. It's when, and I, this is how I discovered or created ZooFit is when I was a zookeeper, I gave 190% to the animals and I just didn't have anything left for myself. And so I would go to work and give everything I could to, to the animals in my care. And I come home and crash. I had absolute zero social life. I actually, again, being married, I didn't even have much of a, of a great relationship with my husband even. And then just the, the general uh, weight of everything I was doing, the, 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 the heavy work 
you know, was taking its toll on my physical well-being, but also because of all of that, just giving everything to the animals, it was taking a huge toll on my emotional and uh, psychological well-being. And that's basically what compassion fatigue is. It, it is, I, I don't know if it's considered a again, technical, you know, diagnosis uh, for like, like depression, but it is a very serious affliction. And again, most of it will be those who are in a caring field to those who, again, social workers, nurses, those in the medical field, and those who care for, for others. And, and I do heavily put in like, especially right now, as I just mentioned, in this age of like, we need to hurry up and get a vaccine. We need to hurry up and take care of the, this pandemic that scientists are very, very much in this, in this category of putting so much into the work and not taking care of themselves that they burn out, they care too much, and, and it can cause some serious uh, psychological issues, mental, you know, mental issues, and just breaks down our well-being overall. Yeah, I've definitely heard my vet friend use it. She's, I've known her for, she's close to 20 years now. And she's definitely talked about having compassion fatigue. And it also can affect your work too, because it can make yes. you, I, like, like you, like, like it sounds, you have this, like, I don't know, imagine you have this like jar of compassion or something and you're constantly giving it away and then you don't have any left to give. And then if you're dealing with, with patients, animal patients or patients, it, yeah, like you, like you need that compassion to refill. Can you, can you talk about when you said you gave 190% to the animals, what does that look like? Like what did, what did your typical day look like? Or what were the types of things that you did? Oh yeah. So being a zookeeper, so I, I'm talking about how <laughs> how, how mentally draining it was, but it was my dream job. I was a, I worked with animals all around the country, but, but when I finally came around, I was working at Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle and, uh, and they working in the, with the elephants at that zoo. So we had three elephants in our care coming in, again, checking, make sure everything's okay. Our, our day pretty much was filled with a lot of cleaning a lot of cleaning, especially with elephants, but we would clean their, uh, clean their, their outside enclosure, then clean their inside, inside enclosures. We would then also do some training with them. So again, building that relationship, 100% very, very important that you were on point focused with these animals. They weigh 8,000 pounds and even in a protected contact setting, which meant that we, we never went in with the elephants. We stayed outside their enclosure. Even in that kind of setting, they could still be very dangerous animals. So you definitely need to be 100% focused and on point. We would do training sessions with them, taking care of, making sure their entire, that they looked okay from the outside and then working with them to see how, if there was anything that might cue us to kind of give us a little sign or signal that that they may may or may not be doing 100% well so again if uh, if an elephant normally has no problem raising their foot and then one day they don't want to or they don't do it when when we'd ask them to it might trigger to us might tell us hey something might be off so that's sort of the important part of doing the training is keeping that relationship and maintain those behaviors with the elephants to 
help in their in their care. Uh, so again, there's that that in itself is mentally draining, and then we the rest of the day would be filled with again feeding the elephants, but also creating uh, what we would call enrichment. And this is basically any kind of activity or toy or device that we would give the animals to keep them physically and mentally engaged. So again, again, fancy fancy word for a toy. <laughs> we would we would make toys for the elephants, and that could be anything from Christmas trees that were donated to the zoo to to big huge what we call boomer balls big big plastic balls or that were nearly indestructible that the elephants could play with and we could put food in those items we could we could scatter food around make it a little bit more challenging a little bit more natural for them to get their food so coming up with new ideas was both mentally draining and then implementing those ideas was physically demanding. And, and so that was basically our day was, yeah, we got to play with elephants, but we also had a lot of hard work that, that went into that as well. Wow. Yeah. And for en enrichment, a lot of times it's meant to mimic their, their natural foraging behaviors because elephants in the wild, they're not just going to have for the most part, a big pail of hay to, to eat from. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you're trying to mimic like how difficult it is to, to get forage in, in the wild. Did you come up with the enrichment? Was that something you were able to develop? I came up with quite a few. One of my one of some of my proudest moments as a zookeeper was coming up with different different items that well either worked or or didn't work but we being also being a zookeeper meant you had to be very resourceful and i, I know other scientists definitely understand where i'm coming <laughs> with here but many zoos have a very tight budget they they're they're the money from those from the visitors you know from the ticket gate and the gates they all go again to the animals and then any kind of leftover money goes to conservation projects. So that still makes a really tight budget. So if we wanted a brand new, you know, shiny toy for, for the animals, we either had to come up with the funds somehow or get super creative. And a couple of the ideas that I had was using what we had around us, lots and lots of bamboo. And so sometimes we get these really thick stalks of bamboo and if you've seen bamboo, they can be segmented. And I would create what I call bamboo popsicles, drill a hole into them, fill them with some, some juice and, or, or some other treats, and then let the elephants destroy it, trying to get to the treats and the juice inside. Other times we, I would create, the other thing I got really excited about was just you know, a spark of, of inspiration came to me and I thought, we could maybe possibly use the boat fenders and what I, I, I was calling a boat. I think I was just calling them buoys at first one point boat bumpers, but I think the technical term are boat fenders. And these are the, again, they're, they're the little buoys that are on the side of boats to keep them from bumping into, into the dock. So very often when they get, they lost or they lose, start losing the air, they get tossed into landfills. And I found a marina that was willing to donate all these, all these extra boat fenders to the zoo. And it opened up a whole new world for, for enriching the animals. We could get in drill holes, we could put food into in the boat fenders. 
we could throw the boat fenders into with these 8,000 pound elephants and let them stomp on them. And they would yeah. take a looking, keep on, you know, kept, kept on ticking. And so they became really, really fun enrichment devices and toys for the elephants in many different capacities, keeping them really, really engaged. Uh, so those were two of my favorites. Again, being resourceful, finding, finding free or um, reusable um, items to, that we can keep these animals engaged. And, and then the, the last part of that was also keeping the landfills a little bit better, better off yeah. keeping these items out of the landfills for at least a little bit longer <laughs> to get mm -hmm. them used from, with the animal, with the animals. That's so great. And Woodland Park Zoo, you mentioned how any extra money goes to conservation and research. They're actually a partner of ours on eMammal and they, I don't, maybe they didn't do this when you were there, but they have a big camera trapping project around the Seattle mm -hmm. area and they upload load all their photos to eMammal. So I get to and anyone oh, nice. can look at them actually, or at least the, the best photos. If you go to emammal.org and view photos, you can look at Woodland Park Zoo's favorite photos. They, I mean, oh, they always awesome. have a lot of pumas. I didn't know that they did that. That was not surprising, but yeah, I, I was not aware that they did that. But that uh, again, the the re outreaches that zoos can do for conservation is is incredible, and it's one of the reasons why I'm such a strong supporter. We don't just uh, we don't just support outside conservation projects, but we can inspire the next generation of conservationists. I myself was inspired by going to a zoo and I met, one of my first memories I have is just five years old pointing to the, the zookeeper and saying, mom, that's what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and I'm sure she said something along the lines of yes, dear, <laughs> but to to my credit, to her and to her credit for helping me, you know, lift me up and, and helping me pursue that dream. I was a zookeeper for, for 15 years. So I have a question for you. It's maybe a little bit of a controversial question. So I have a, I have a blog post all about zoos and trying to navigate between ethical and, and less ethical zoos because zoos is a big word. And this was inspired by Tiger King. Did you watch Tiger King? I have not. I've, I've, oh, I've you got to watch it. Not have Netflix. <laughs> you got to watch it. But it was basically about a, a really crappy private-owned zoo, and just the word mm -hmm. zoo got lumped in with all these other zoos. So I wanted to help people differentiate them. But it is, as an animal lover, difficult because you do want animals to all be free, but at the same time, you do understand, I understand the educational benefits of zoos. What do you mm -hmm. think about, so animals like elephants, where some people, whether elephants are, they're really intelligent, they're really social. Do you think we should start phasing them out of zoos? Or do you think that maybe they should only be in some zoos? Like, like where I'm from in Buffalo, New York, the enclosure is really pretty small. And I know some mm -hmm. zoos have even given up their elephants to sanctuaries. Yeah. So just on that even last point, again, it was a very good, it was just around the same time I was leaving. Woodland Park also closed their elephant program. And it was something I, I, I agreed with, I supported because I will say this for elephants and animals alike elephants. And again, this gorillas can be classified and this tigers can be like if you're going to if you're going to showcase this animal you need to give that animal you know the best the best live life that uh, that not even just like possible just you have to give them the best life 
So mm-hmm. a lot of zoos, you know, are a lot of, a lot of, I've all met that a lot of animal rights activists do focus on these, again, animals like dolphins and elephants. And now there's getting uh, attention towards uh, larger primate, you know, great, great apes, like mm-hmm. gorillas and orangutans. But there's a lot of places that do do those facility do those exhibits right. One I again nice little plug here for, but one in particular that I, I've seen firsthand is Oregon Zoo. And Oregon Zoo is again, this is in my opinion, what, what a lot of zoos need to do in this regard is that they knew they needed to grow the space. And they said we either need to find the elephants a, a better home or we need to hone our focus on what we can and cannot keep so that we can give the elephants better care. So they closed their wolf exhibit. They revamped a couple other exhibits and closed them to give the elephants more space and to give them a a bigger acreage of outdoor space. And then they revamped their their, uh, barn. And now it looks like, again, my, 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 description of the Oregon Zoo elephant barn is it's an airplane hangar. It's huge. <laughs> it's That's absolutely, great. and they have indoor, like, you know, indoor living room, basically, where the elephants can play in natural substrate, even though it's inside. So again, they did it. They, again, they went all in. They are going all in for their, for their animals. And if they're going to, and this is a big thing for zoos, because I mentioned Zoos, most zoos are a nonprofit. They're not just, they're not rolling in money. They can't just wave a wand and say, bigger space for elephants and, and everything works out fine. They have to raise the money for it. They have to plan it out. So while that's great they, that Oregon Zoo can do it, not every zoo can provide six acres of land and an airplane hangar for the elephants to hang out indoors. However, that doesn't mean that those zoos aren't providing excellent care. I don't know the exact situation of, of Buffalo, but I would have I, to be able to accurately comment. Yeah. I would have to see them, see, see them in action. Like, are they providing great enrichment? Even if it's not a huge space, mm-hmm. are, they, are they getting the elephants to, to move to Rome to be a little, bit, you know, to be an elephant is what I would actually call it. And that's the same thing with going back to Woodland Park Zoo. They closed the elephant program. I kind of got this this impression that we would, again, we w- would be able to give the elephants you know, everything that they needed because we had other projects that were that were starting to take our focus. And I think the the real deciding factor was we lost one of our elephants, mm. and we were having a really hard time getting a third. And again, this is a welfare thing. We elephants are social animals. Two mm-hmm. is a very dangerous number for social animals. So going down from three to two, we we came came to realize that okay, we can either you know we would need to again grow our elephant program immensely so that we can we can attract more elephants to our zoo for places to send their elephants which would cost a lot more money. We would have to get rid of a few other animals and again, expand in a way that we may not be prepared to do. Or we can send our elephants to another program that 
does, that is, as, we, as I just mentioned, committed to the elephants. And so we decided on the latter. Let's, you know, let's, let's let another facility that is 100% able to care for the, these two elephants, let them, let them take them in and uh, let them be social animals in a group setting. So that's what, that was where we were at. Again, as I just said, I fully agree with, with either, either one. So again, mm -hmm. going all in and uh, losing a few of the animals that maybe people really love to, to look, to watch, but giving it to the, to those families that you are going to take care of. So again, that, whether you're talking about elephants, orangutans, or dolphins, you're going 100%, or, you know, let's get to, let's, let's collaborate with another zoo and let them give them the, you know, the, the, the space and the social interactions that they need. So uh, I want, it just so happened that I was already <laughs> mentally working my way out the door going, mm -hmm. I, I have this idea, it's called ZooFit, and I'm struggling to get it out into the world. I'm having this wonderful job, but again, it takes a lot out of you, even, <laughs> even when you're fit, <laughs> it takes a lot out of you. So I had this idea for ZooFit and the elephants were heading out. I was like, this is a transitional period. Let's you know, let's see where ZooFit can take me. And I, again, decided that once when the, when the elephants left, I would be leaving the zoo too. So you, so, well, first off, I want to say that actually I, I worked at Disney's Animal Kingdom for a little bit and yeah, the keepers saw, yeah. there loved it because Disney had so much money. They could like whatever <laughs> they wanted for the animals, like money was never an issue because obviously they're making money from the parks and stuff. Okay. So let's, let's get into zoo fit. I do want to come back to tricks and training for a little bit, but for zoo fit. So so this is a fitness program, correct? Like, a, a, is it a weight loss program or a fitness program or well-being program? Well, yeah, well, well, well-being wellness program. With, I won't even say a focus. I, I, I tend to think that I'm pretty, pretty diverse in both nutrition and and exercise, and then also the 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 key of it is those little healthy habits. You know, the mm -hmm. the, the training habits <laughs> that we incorporate in our lives. So drinking water, <laughs> getting enough sleep and, and, and so forth. So yeah, well-being wellness have uh, program. So did you just feel like, like yourself, like you were deteriorating and you needed to refresh yourself and then maybe started doing this on your own. And then you're like, I have to share this with other people, or could you see this in other people around you? Like how exactly did it come about? Yeah, this was, you, you just nailed it on the head. It was, <laughs> it was a, it was one of those lightning has struck my brain moments that I was, I, I was chopping up some enrichment, you know, some snacks, treats for the elephants. And it just, just hit me like, like a, literally like up, upside the head. How can I take care of these animals if I'm not taking care of myself? It was just one of those aha moments. And I decided, there you go. I, I don't have an excuse. I absolutely need to get into fitness but I'd done it before I, I'd done the the fad diets I'd done the you know mm -hmm. going to the gym every day I'd, I'd done you know, weight loss programs fitness programs you know going to my high school reunion for my wedding for everything you know all these other big events and they just never stuck and I think for me 
it was having that why that I was never going to really, really ever reach with fitness. And that was, I want to be a better zookeeper. And why you don't ever get, to, you never get to that point. If you're always wanting to be a better zookeeper, you're always going to strive to be better. If that makes sense. So it wasn't going to be an end point. It wasn't going to end. This was going to become a lifestyle for me where I'm always going to be improving mm -hmm. and, and getting a little bit better for the animals. This is the other key. It was bigger than myself. It was for the animals. And so realizing that I didn't want it, it wasn't an end game. I wanted to do this a little bit differently. I've done, as I mentioned, done all the programs before. I've forced myself to go to work out. I've guilted myself. Very popular in fitness trends is using, you know, guilt, shame, blaming us, you know, berating us for not meeting our goals. And I said, no, that's not how this is going to, that's not how this is going to go. That <laughs> I, I wanted it to be. Uh, a positive experience because this was, as I mentioned, it was going to be a lifelong thing for me. It was going to, it was going to go till, till I was no longer, you know, till I no longer here on this earth. So I, I decided let, if I'm doing this for the animals, let's treat it like I would the animals. And so I started using the ways, the, the principles, what I call the, the pillars of zookeeping, things I use every day for the animals I started using for my fitness. So the way we work with the animals using the animal training methods of positive reinforcement, making it an empowering experience for me. And again, what we, the, the shaping, what we would call like the breaking up of small behaviors into small pieces, rather than gung ho, creating these lifelong habits that run on autopilot, basically, because I've I've been training it for, for a long time. The other things I started incorporating were enrichment can, to make it an, engaging for me. So not just looking at and this, literally the same thing. I, that means toys and activities. I played, I, I played games with my fitness, making it fun and varying it a little bit. So not having the same bland salad every single day, oh, gross, you know, forcing myself. I'm like, no, if I don't want a salad, let's not do the salad. Let's make something else that's healthy, kind of keeping it variable, but also playing games and working out, making it super fun. I stopped thinking of working out as work. Started thinking of it as my recess. As this is, I get to do this rather mm -hmm. than I have to do this. But the last one, most powerful for me, and it, I will admit it didn't take take off immediately, but I started seeing these interesting connections between my healthy habits and conservation uh, efforts. So for instance, I think you've, I think you've talked about palm oil. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've talked about palm oil. And I've started noticing that, hey, nutritionists are saying, you know, if you want to eat healthy, eliminate processed food, you know, stop eating food with a lot of sugar in it. And then on this opposite side, you have conservationists saying, let's eliminate our plastic waste, you know, sustainable palm oil, and, and you go uh, organic local ingredients. And I'm looking at these two people saying, saying very different things, but actually meeting in the middle, they, they are advocating the same thing. If we eliminate processed foods that have palm oil and wrapped in plastic, 
we're going to eat a lot healthier and we're going to have a much better impact on the environment. Uh, I also, as a caveat, I do recognize that boycotting palm oil is not the answer. I really do recognize that. However, eliminating it from your diet is kind of like saving two birds with one action. You're going to, you're, you're doing this for a higher purpose of I'm, I am not having palm oil in my food because it's not good for the environment. It's not good for conservation and I'm eating healthier for me. So it kind of becomes a win-win. And that, that idea there, that connection to conservation kind of just changed my entire life and my whole thinking. So seeing how exercising, riding my bike or walking to, to a destination rather than driving, yeah, it's, it's a lot healthier for me and it's a lot healthier for the environment. Bang, Here, let's just create a, a habit where I don't have to drive as often. You know, even sleeping, there's little teeny tiny habits Getting enough sleep means that shutting off all my electronics at least an hour before I go to bed. Very teeny tiny habit, but it, again, it's, it's, it creates a ripple effect, effect. So I'm turning off my electronics, turning off my lights an hour before I go to bed. I'm saving, some, uh, I'm saving energy, I'm saving electricity, and I'm getting better sleep at night, which then when I wake up, I have a lot more willpower, a lot more focus, a lot more energy to do more for myself and for the planet. So all these little connections started coming together and I'm becoming not just, not just again, a bigger why helping myself, helping the planet, but creating what I call the, well, what we would call the positive feedback loop. So again, I am doing something that feels good and it carries over. I want to do, it feels good to me and what we call intrinsic motivation. But then as we Going towards that, the end of that cycle, we we find some temptation, or we hit that brick wall. We're like, the, it's really cold outside. I don't feel like riding my bike, or or you know, there's donuts in the break room. Oh my God, what you know, what do I do? When we hit that, when we hit that wall, we can then use the conservation as that extra motivation to help us not just climb over the wall, but I've said just break through it, complete that cycle, and we're having a better impact on our health and on the environment. And again, that win-win really just helped propel me in the process of becoming, a, again, wanting to be a better zookeeper. The other idea is that I was not just talking the talk, I was walking the walk. So telling visitors to, to, you know, to reduce their carbon footprint I wasn't just telling them to do that. I was doing it. I was riding my bike more. I was walking. I was saving, saving my energy. So not just, you know, not just telling people how to, how to behave, but showing them how to do it. And then being that example, like, hey, yeah, I lost weight. I've got, gained my energy. I've improved my mood. Don't have compassion fatigue anymore. So those things, those things kind of, those things became more of an example, shine brighter than me being the most, you know, most engaging person on the planet and telling you to give up certain aspects rather than, oh, wow, she looks great. She, she says, again, she, she, looks, she looks fantastic. She has got a lot more energy. I wanna be more like her, what's she doing? Oh, she uh, cut up plastic food, you know, 
foods that are wrapped in plastic. I can do that too. And, and so that was where it became also, again, the second step of ZooFit evolving was like, oh, I can actually change other people's lives. I don't have to just change my life. I can change other people's lives and make a difference in their lives and make a significant difference in the world. And that's where, again, propelled. I was like, that's it. I got to do this. <laughs> we got we to gotta keep, we got to share this with the rest of the world. And so that's where, <laughs> where we are right now. I love that. And I, I, like you, realize a similar connection that here I was blogging about wildlife and stuff, but I also have always been passionate about health. My, my mom had cancer when I was young and then she got it again as liver cancer about 20 oh. years later. So I've always been really passionate about like what I eat and everything. And then, yeah, like you said, I realized it's all connected. And, and actually one of my, my most successful blog posts is this random recipe I did for a vegan protein shake. And it's so successful because it's on Pinterest and Pinterest is really oh, about food. Yeah. And I'm thinking about making more of them because if that could get people like, you know, into the wildlife and conservation aspect of them, like by thinking about their bodies and losing weight and stuff, then maybe that's an avenue to reach them. But I agree. And, and, and according to research, the, the, one of the two top things that you can do is, is reduce your carbon impact by giving up your car. So walking in and cycling everywhere and then, and then what you eat as well. So what yeah. exactly, if somebody signs up for your program, like what exactly does it look like? Like, what are they getting from you? Well, for, for me, I have the program I have, it runs right now, it's running a few times a year and it's called the ZooFit Safari Challenge. So you would get all the books in the ZooFit, the ZooFit bundle and including the including ZooFit Safari. So this is a five week program. I'm not going to guarantee you're going to lose weight during this program, but what I am going to do again, what training is all about for the animals, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to teach you about different, different paths, different ways, and help you find your unique way to, uh, to your fitness, to your well-being. So the big question I would get as a as a zookeeper was, what's the one thing I need to do to save the world? And I'm, that was a big question. I'm, I would get more than why I'm like, I don't know, what can you do? <laughs> that would be my, my answer is like, well, I mean, if it, you can give up your car, great, do that. But if that's not feasible, if you are, if you live, like maybe move closer, but if you live 45 miles from, from work, maybe, you know, giving up your car might not be feasible, but what can you do? Maybe you can, again, ride your bike to the grocery store rather than just to work. So that's, that's great. Do that. And so that became, that was one aspect of the, of the very popular question is what, what one thing to do. Then I became a fitness consultant. I thought, okay, well, I don't have to hear that again. Instead, people were asking me, what's the dot, what's the best diet? What's the best exercise? What's the one healthy habit I should do? And once again, my eyes would get kind of wide, like the one that you will do for the rest of your life is, is you know, what can you do? And so the whole idea is if vegetarian diet make you know, the idea of giving up meat for the rest of your life terrifies you and actually fills you with rage, don't do it. Do not, you know, that's not for you. However, there are some, maybe some components of a vegetarian diet that 
that do appeal to you. And maybe you can reduce your meat intake and, and have a really huge impact on your health and on, on the planet at the same time and still do, you know, have your cake and eat it too. In that instance, for me, I, I, I also have done some research into the ketogenic diet. That's a wonderful, wonderful diet. It's very, very healthy. It's also been, it's sometimes been called the anti-cancer diet, eliminating a lot, eliminating sugar from, from your, from your eating habit completely, just eliminating it really, really healthy. But again, it's not for every, everyone. It's a very difficult one to do. So what I do for the Zufit Safari and the challenge is I give you five weeks. We're going to go through five different eating lifestyles. So five different ways that you can eat. We're going to go through five different exercise um, programs, different styles of exercising. We're going to focus on five different healthy habits each week. And then each week we're going to connect those habits, connect those eating lifestyles to conservation in some way. So again, five weeks, five different ideas each for from each week find your way find what speaks to you is it the paleo diet is it is it strength training is it focusing on drinking more water or is it again eliminating eliminating plastic from from your diet completely eliminating it from your life what is what is it that works for you and and what is your path and so we again that's the the general gist is to again empower you, find your way, and help you to make your best your best impact on your health and on the planet itself. And the next the next we always have the next challenge posted up on the website, but I believe it's going to be April fourth, the first April first Sunday in April is when we'll start the next Safari challenge. So if you sign up for the challenge, you get the 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 Zufit Safari the book and. And you also have access to live workouts. We'll also do some uh, demos, have some cooking demo videos and then coaching calls. So again, get online with a, a, a group of really supportive people that are all wanting to make the difference in their life in the world. And we're going to celebrate every step of the way. That's the big thing. We have celebrations for we celebrate our big wins our little wins and even those learning opportunities. We hope we're celebrating even those again, the setbacks saying, yes, instead of this would being a failure, this is a learning opportunity. What can I learn from this? The, the true scientist mentality, instead of, oh, this didn't support my hypothesis. Uh, this didn't go the way I wanted it to. We put on our little, our lab coats and be like, Let's see how, let's see what we can do to make, to either make this work or let's, let's see why this happened this way. So again, being curious and celebrating every step of the way for, for that. That's so great. I really like that. I like how you're tying it into conservation and you're right. You can do diets differently and still make it sustainable. I, Mm -hmm. I grew up vegetarian because mostly because of animal welfare, but at like 12, I learned about factory farms and I was like, I don't want to eat meat anymore. But then as I got older in my, I guess in my thirties, I had health issues. So I finally, like I mostly energy issues. So I finally started adding meat back into my diet, like against my own will. 
And I actually didn't find that that helped, but I've tried like all of the different diets. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I understand that different people don't want to give up meat, but you can buy locally from a farmer. That's what I did. And, and yes. actually what I found was my problem was caffeine or not caffeine, sorry, coffee. And that was, I found that through doing an autoimmune diet, which was a really strict diet. And basically yes. all you eat is meat. <laughs> And some vegetables, you don't even eat all the vegetables and fruits, but yeah, you're right. And I, and that's, and I think people get really turned off by vegetarian and especially vegan. And there's, it's, it, you don't have to be a vegan to eat vegan sometimes, or you, it's, it's more like we're going towards that direction as a whole. Right. I, I love that too. Yeah. You don't have to be vegan to, to enjoy the vegan, vegan lifestyle. And that same thing. I am a mostly plant-based uh, eater myself right now. I live in the Pacific Northwest. I'm very, very fortunate. So our great protein for us that if we're wanting to splurge is, uh, is seafood. Again, mm -hmm. amazing seafood around here. But for, for the most part, we do, both my husband and I do practice a mostly vegetarian, mostly plant-based. But again, supplementing with locally raised, maybe some yogurt once in a while, definitely some fresh backyard egg, egg, eggs from backyard chickens and, and enjoying that. Again, it's whatever speaks to you. You can make it sustainably sourced. Um, again, whether that's cutting out meat, I do think that the vegetarian or that is what, we, what I would call an 80-20 principle. Again, 80% effect, 80% results from very little effort. So 20% of the effort gets 80% of these results. And it, again, as far as both your health and the health of the planet, going to a, a vegetarian or plant-based diet. However, there's lots of other diets. There's lots of other ways to have that impact. Again, eliminating processed food is super healthy for us. People looking into the Mediterranean diet may find it's a lot more feasible for them. They can enjoy some meats here and there, but, and maybe even some wine once in a while at having it moderately, but also eliminating that processed food, again, getting rid of the plastic, getting rid of the palm oil or the conflict palm oil from their diet and having a better impact that way as well. So yeah, everybody's going to be a little bit different there. You know, this is my way. What's your way. This is a fun way to explore it and find out. And people respond differently to different diets too. Like, like I did the keto diet and I actually gained weight on it. Like my body <laughs> did not like it. And for the longest time, you know, everyone was saying low carb, low carb. So I, I reduced my carbs for such a long time. And finally I was like, screw it. I'm going to start eating carbs again. <laughs> and I actually lost weight eating carbs. So every, everyone is, is different, but I really like that. And you, you definitely use, um, tricks or tools or lessons from human psychology and which obviously is used for animal training as well. Yeah. And this stuff works, all these small habit changes. That's really what it's all about. You're totally right on that. So we're getting close to the hour. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up our conversation? We could, I, I, there's a couple of things that kind of feel like I glossed over on tangents, but, uh, yeah, so we do use the principles of, again, we call operant conditioning, again, the little nerdy, nerdy term there, but it's animal training. And so what we're going to breaking those behaviors into small steps. So rather than going gung ho, I'm going to go to the gym for an hour, five days a week, mm -hmm. when you 
never worked out in your life, that's not sustainable. And that's not what we would do with the animals. If we're going to train an animal to step onto a scale to get a weight, we don't put the scale in the room and be like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and, and, and expect the animal to immediately sit still on the scale. It takes time. They first have to even get desensitized to the scale, meaning they have to get used to it being in the area. And that's, it's not a big scary monster that's going to eat them. And then gradually we can, we'll put one paw on the scale and then the entire, the entire body. And then if we're again talking about maybe a cat, like a tiger, they get getting their tail to wrap around. So it's not hanging off so we can get an accurate weight on that animal and each step. And this is the funny thing that we've been really kind of promoting with ZooFit is very often we want to reward the end result. Yeah, I will reward myself when I've lost 10 pounds. Whereas trainers and animal trainers, we reinforce every step of the way. So the first time they put that paw on the scale, they get reinforced, they get rewarded for that effort uh, for, for doing that, that step. And so it encourages the animal to keep going. This is the difference between a reward and reinforcement also is that Again, you get your reward for losing the 10 pounds and we stop our efforts. And again, I like to, to equivalent this to when we, if you, if you see a, a lost cat sign that says reward and you find the cat and you return it, are you going to, and you get that reward, are you going to continue looking for the cat? No, we're, we're, we've stopped looking for the cat. We got the reward. <laughs> we don't need to look for the cat anymore. Well, if we are reinforced every time we that the, the neighbor saw us looking for the cat, you know, even if we didn't find it the first time, if we were reinforced for it, we would keep looking until mm -hmm. you know, until that end result. So that's where the difference between ZooFit and most other programs is that we're not focused on this end goal. We're gonna celebrate. You wanna lose 10 pounds? Great, we'll get there. We will get there. But let's celebrate that one pound. Let's celebrate that five and a half pounds let's celebrate that nine and a half pounds I mean again you're almost there but rather than just going oh you you haven't lost 10 pounds yet you've only lost mm -hmm. nine and a half how ridiculous is that we would never do that with the animals yeah you would never say you've only got three feet on the scale we would celebrate each step of the way so that's a big a big component for ZooFit is using that the animal training methodologies, animal training mentality to just apply it to ourselves, treating ourselves with a lot more respect and, uh, and having a lot more fun and motivating us to keep going forward. What kind of rewards do people give themselves? Because one of the, before I, I learned how to celebrate when I went to Unleash the Power within a Tony Robbins without food or alcohol, but that's usually, yeah. and food and alcohol are usually not good for your weight loss. So do you, do you, do people reward themselves with little treats or is it non-food rewards? Yeah, that's a whole, again, whole other class. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> looking to, to write very hopefully this year. Uh, the book is called positive reinforcement is not a burger after the gym. And <laughs> That's it, that pinning that exactly because we're shopping one, too. That's another one. And if you don't have a lot of money, you can't shop. Right. If you don't have a lot of money, that might be hard, but rather than, you know, let, 
first of all, why would we negate all that hard work? You know, you just worked out. So you're going to negate all of that hard work with, you know, super unhealthy junk food or, or treats. But second of all, once again, that's, it becomes a, a reward. It also sets up for a deprivation. Whereas, oh, I didn't work out hard enough or I didn't, I didn't do the workout. So now where are you going to starve? And that it, it's my, my philosophy is if you want a burger, have a burger for the love. <laughs> Just, you know, if you want pizza, have a pizza, but don't let the pizza be the reason you went to the gym. So we often have as, as adults, I call it adulting. If we want something, we just go out and get it. But if we were kids, we would ask our parents, Hey mom, I want this book. And they'd be like, well, earn it. And, you know, do this chore or do, or, you know, mow the lawn and you can earn the money to get this, the book. But we, but then we, we use food as a reinforcement. So let's flip that. If you want that burger, be an adult and have the burger. But if you, if you want something else, again, like that book, maybe use that as an incentive. So when I first started my fitness program, I was going to a gym and it wasn't very pleasant at first. I'm not gonna lie. It was uncomfortable. I it was it was hard. It was it, there is there is a, a sense that it was it was a little bit of unbearable. So instead of giving up though, I gave myself a little incentive. And every time I went to the gym, I would download a, a new song on my on my iPhone. It could have been a song that I heard on the way to work. It, it could have been a, it could have been a, a, a song I heard at the gym. Maybe it was during, during the fitness class that I attended. Maybe it was just a song that really, that pumped me up. But whatever it was, if I went to the gym, I got to download a song. And eventually, this was, again, in my opinion, a perfect motivator because it was a reward. It was kind of a little, a little incentive to get me to go there. But then that song would be on my playlist. And when I would hear it again, it would trigger in my mind that, yeah, you got this because you were working out. And it would pump me up and get me excited to work out again. And eventually I, was, I didn't need to download a song every time I went to the gym. It was just on those days that I didn't maybe feel like, like I would look at my watch and be like, oh no, I don't, have, I don't wanna go to class. You know, Let me just sleep in 10 minutes longer and and I'll skip, I'll go to class next time. My brain would trigger and say, yeah, go to class and then you can download a song. And again, if it just kind of helped push, push me, push me along. Eventually I have, I don't need to download songs anymore. I, I, I am in the state where Hal Elrod wrote Miracle Morning and he says it, we're going from the unbearable to the uncomfortable stage. And by the time I didn't need to download a song at all anymore. I was in the unstoppable because it didn't matter if I felt like it or not. I wasn't relying on an extrinsic reward. Mm -hmm. I was I was like, I would have that moment where like, oh man, it'd be really great to sleep in an extra 10 minutes. And my brain would be like, it'd be nice, but you're going to get up anyways. <laughs> and, uh, and I would, because I knew I was going to feel so yeah. much better if I, if I went that direction. So there's other, I, I do totally advocate finding something else that, that motivates you. And again, being as, as a, we are adults, it can be, Hey, I, I enjoy tea. Maybe I can get a brand new tea at the, at the tea shop, at a fancy tea shop. Mm -hmm. If you like reading books, maybe it's about downloading a new book or ordering a new book. 
or getting a book at the library even, and even just allowing us time. Hey, if I finish this project, I will give myself 20 minutes to just sit in a corner, quiet and read, which is again, this is an adulting thing <laughs> because if kids want to do that, they just do it. <laughs> right. but, but for us, we, you know, we can use those as little, little rewards. I do think if you're really struggling, if there again, you've either hit a plateau or yeah, just can't even really get started. Trainers might call this a jackpot. Go ahead and trigger it with something big, maybe a dinner out or or something that you wouldn't normally equate as a reinforcement just to kind of get you get you going. And then then hold, bring it back a little bit to is it a song downloading a song? Is it giving yourself some time to to unwind, relax? Is it these little, a little, uh, a little reward? The other thing is don't underestimate the power of many celebrations in the moment immediately. Again, if you have to wait three or four hours to get your reward, there's no, there's not much of a connection with your brain. But if you, if you make that immediate and you're like, again, have that, have that celebration. You can fist pump in the air. You literally pat yourself on the back. You can have a little card where you give yourself a star. You're just like, yes, this is me. I'm awesome. I did that. That actually tells your brain that this is something worth craving. This is a behavior worth craving. And that has just as much power. This is again, science does show that that action of patting yourself on the back, giving yourself a gold star has just as much power as eating M&Ms. Wow. So if that, if that is just as powerful, let's go that route, go with the mini celebrations to help crave that behavior a little bit more. I need to do that more at the mini <laughs> celebrations. I'm bad. I am not bad at celebrating. I need to do that more. We, well, we celebrate that right there. <laughs> you just learned. So again, we turned this around. We just actually even just said, I'm bad at this. And I, I've said, Woohoo, I got something I can work on. <laughs> I, I was just telling this to somebody yesterday. I was, I was leading a class and I'm like, yeah, I'm horrible at leg exercises. And I turned that around. I'm like, actually, let me cancel that. I, I, leg exercise is something I can definitely improve on. And I can't wait to, to practice that. And uh, again, me turning that around, turn her opinion around too. So let's do that with you real quickly. You're not bad at it. This is something you get to practice. <laughs> Woohoo! You're awesome. I actually did use that psychology today at the, at the gym. Cause I work with a trainer and he gave me this new exercise I've done before and I hate it. <laughs> it's so hard. Like you have the, the big exercise ball over your head and you're laying down and you, you have it. And then you put it over your, your head and your legs come up and you transfer it to your oh, legs. Yeah. It's a really good ab workout. Oh my God. But I was hating it today. And I thought to myself, this is something I can work on. And I'm going to be so excited because my form is really bad now to like show my trainer that my form is going to improve. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to have rock star abs too. Well, thank you so much for coming. It was such, it was so great talking to you and I'll put everything that everyone needs to know in the show notes so they can sign up for your zoo fit challenge. Great. Thanks so much. That was such a fun conversation. I loved how PJ 
meshed the world of conservation, animal welfare, and animal caretaking with healthy living. I love that so much. So you can find her online at zoofit.net. You can sign up for that safari challenge. She mentions that it begins in April. So make sure you head over there and get signed up for it. You can also find her. She has a Facebook page. She has a YouTube channel. And at Twitter, you can find her at earth underscore fit. Zoos are something that I actually really love talking about because as I mentioned, when Tiger King hit, I... I realized I had so much to blog about, and that's actually when I started podcasting as well and um, doing more YouTube videos because Tiger King took people by storm and they are an example of one kind of zoo, which is a really, really terrible zoo. And as I mentioned in this episode, that there are some, there's lots of gray areas with zoos, and it's really difficult to tell if some animals should be in zoos, shouldn't be in zoos, in in general. And then, of course, it varies with the zoos. So if you want some help navigating that world, I have YouTube videos and podcast episodes and blog posts about how to tell ethical zoos from unethical zoos. It gives you some some pointers that you can look for. And I totally agree with with PJ that it is it is, it is challenging and it varies according to the different institutions. For some zoos, I'm like they should get rid of their elephants. And we say get rid of the animals or lose their animals. They're not like, it's not like they're being euthanized. They are being transferred to another zoo. And in the cases when they release elephants, they're transferred to sanctuaries like the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee, which is a fantastic sanctuary. So I have a post on navigating sanctuaries as well, which can also be really confusing. And, and elephant sanctuaries particularly because there are lots of places that call themselves sanctuaries but are really just tourist attractions where you can take pictures with the animals and they're not really doing anything good for the elephants. So this is something I'm really, really passionate about. So thank you, PJ, once again. And and on these web on these websites, I just want to add that you'll learn about the educational benefits of a zoo as well and, and why they're justified conservation-wise. It's a very it's a very interesting topic with lots of layers so I highly suggest that you check it out thanks guys so much for watching I am so grateful for each and every single one of you and I hope you have an amazing day bye if you liked this episode care about wildlife care about conservation or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com.
If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.